Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, something funny that Eric did today was when we were talking about all the events coming up, he just, in response, posted a video of Hotel California. You can check out anytime <laughs> you like, but you can never, ever leave. It just keeps going. It's the summer of E3 that lasts forever. I think we're like a month in at this point. We're a month in, and there, God, I think there's events stretching into August easy. Oh, into September, because we have our own event happening, Nadia. That's right, we do. We're, we're adding to the noise, and we're very proud of it. Yes, we're going to be a PAX Digital Cross EGX online event. A massive global nine-day event that's going to stretch across three continents and include all of the game gamer network slash read pop websites. Oh my god, it's a lot of work that is already suddenly on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny how, you know, somehow with all these canceled events, we're just busier than ever, which is I know. a blessing in a way, but busy, 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 busy. If you all aren't familiar with EGX, that is Eurogamer's event that they have run, been running in London and over in Berlin. Uh, traditionally, like that's been kind of over there. US Gamer hasn't really participated in that. But since EGX was obviously canceled due to COVID, um, it's been combined with PAX Online. And wow, like so one mega festival, I guess, in which we get to do a lot of cool things with Eurogamer. I'm really looking forward to it. I love those guys. We are looking very forward to entertaining you all. We have some cool ideas. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to have something unique for Acts of the Blood God uh, for this event. Of course. Um, I'm a little sad we can't do another live podcast, but maybe next year. Uh, I don't know. There's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility of being able to do a live podcast, Nadia. Oh, I mean, just like, you know, in, in that hotel room with the makeshift sound <laughs> studio we made out of, out of like, uh, what was it, couch cushions and the trails of cold steel box. Great moments in Blood God history, right? That really was. That was that was number one on my list. That was also when we conceived of the console RPG quest, because one of my original ideas during that was like, well, let's pick the best RPG for every console. Wait a minute. That should be a whole series. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. We are going to this week be doing the console RPG quest for the OG Xbox. Uh, to my mind the true beginning of the modern era of video games. Also the second week in a row that we are really focusing on Western RPGs. Uh, Oh my God, there's a world outside of JRPGs. I can't even believe it. I can barely imagine it. I'm trying my best to imagine it. And I am trying my best to explore it these days. But uh, my specialty is still definitely the the stuff with the heroes that have the the hair color like candy. Nani, I'm just kind of like gently nudging you over to Witcher 3 on the Switch. Yeah, I, I mean, I have it. I'm just playing another game right now, another RPG. Oh. Okay, some housekeeping really quickly. If you like the podcast, can I recommend that you give us a review over on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice? It really helps the visibility of the podcast. We have another podcast going on right now. It's called Branching Narratives. It's a limited run series with Jeff Green. We're taking a break this week. We had Pete Hines on last week. And this week, we, uh, we have not yet confirmed the guest, but we will back, be back next Wednesday. And we've got some really excellent guests coming up as well. So go and subscribe to that. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And all of the US Gamer channels are on US GamerNet. We're not streaming this week either because it's a holiday. It's Ooh, July 4th. Fireworks. <laughs> yeah, it's a really exciting time to be an American, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. 
I think it's only appropriate that we are doing uh, the Xbox on Independence Day, which, oh. of course, is a one of the first big American consoles and also the console that was home to Metal Wolf Chaos, the most patriotic console of all time. Oh, my God. I played the remake of that at a re-release, and I was just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> that was so American. We also have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. And oh my God, Nadia, we like it's been kind of annoying to actually subscribe to it in the past, but now you can go to the US Gamers homepage and there is a link to subscribe to it right at the top on the banner. So you can just click on that. Boom, you're subscribed to Axe of the Blood God nice. newsletter. Good to out hear. Every single Wednesday. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? It was a little spontaneous because. When I was thinking of something to write, there was a meme going around on Twitter asking, what is a 90s song that you think everyone has forgotten? You know, a song that you love. And to me, that was Guns N' Roses' Breakdown, which is a great, great song from User Illusions 1 that nobody talks about. So I started thinking, well, what are some quote-unquote forgotten RPG songs from around the same era? Because that was a really a golden era for RPG music, and so much of the great stuff slid right by us. I think some I, I cited a few things. Uh, one is like the song, a song called "Hope" that opens up Wild Arms, and it's Rudy's theme, and it's just a really, really emotional, gorgeous song that you don't hear anyone talk about. When they talk about Wild Arms, they talk about oh, you know, the intro song, and sure, that's a great song, but nobody talks about this this amazing, really emotional theme. And I was also talking about, um, even in, in like Final Fantasy VII, people say, oh, One-Winged Angel, oh, Eris' theme. And I decided to kind of highlight a song that nobody really talks about, and I just adore, and it's Interrupted by Fireworks, which is the song that plays when you're on the date with whomever. And of course, it has the most impact if you're on the date with Eris, so I chose that one for, for one of my songs. I really hope you get to go on a date with Barrett in Final Fantasy VII Remake too. <laughs> yeah, I gotta admit, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to date Barrett, but I, I'm I still ship Cloud and Aerith, so I I don't know, I'm I'm at a loss. Uh, you also mentioned a song from Legend of Legea, interestingly enough. Oh right, I did mention that. Um, Legend of Legea, I do not like. I, I'm sorry, I bought it, I hated it. Uh, but I do have to say the Overworld theme, which plays when it's all when the game starts in a very misty sort of field and there's enemies in the in the mist because of course everything's based on Stephen King's The Mist. Um, that has a really nice sort of haunting overall theme that I always liked and it's probably the only thing I really liked about that game. It's okay though you've probably made a Legend of Ligeia fan very sad just now. I'm sure I've made several because I know there's all these like I would say mundane slash uh, mediocre JRPGs on the PlayStation that a lot of people love. A lot of people will go to war for Legend of Dragoon. I have learned this. I know. I mean, nostalgia is a hell of a drug, right? It really is. I mean, look how much I adore Wild Arms, but I can't exactly say everyone else will love it. All right, let's continue on to the news. First piece of news, Nadia, I already mentioned Trails of Cold Steel 3. It's out on the Nintendo Switch. You haven't had a chance to play it, but I know that you really enjoyed the original release on PS4, so uh, it comes highly recommended. Yes, it does. Um, I haven't read too many reviews, like I said, but the ones I have read suggest that the game is ported really well. And that makes sense, because Trails of Cold Steel, the series, um, it's not the most... Uh, mechanically intensive rpg in the world i see no reason why it wouldn't have like any problems going over to the switch so 
It, it is a great game. Whether or not you start with it, I, I don't really recommend that. Some people say it's fine. There's lots of like summaries that you can read in the game. I would say start from the first one, but I don't remember if that's on the Switch or not. should be if it's not. I don't think it is. Uh, our friends over at RPG site gave it a solid review, saying it's uh, an 8 out of 10, but also wondered, who is this for? <laughs> Given that it's hard to recommend to newcomers, <laughs> yeah. and most fans who really wanted this would likely have played it on PS4 already. So uh, I think that's a solid question. <laughs> it is a very, very solid question because I have, I know there's rights issues with the translations between companies, etc. And so that's why it's not so easy to just release all the games on the Switch. But it, the the Trails of Cold Steel series is a great candidate for the Switch. I know that Nihon Falcom is really focusing a little bit more on the system, which is good. So I really hope someday we will get the other games on the Switch and everyone can enjoy them from the start. I think that it might be for somebody who happened to play Trails of Cold Steel 1 and 2 on, say, like the Vita and we're like, you know, I really want to play 3, but didn't get around to it. Oh, hey, it's out on Nintendo Switch. Yeah, Done. perfect. That You're set. Though it's a very hardcore RPG series with a hardcore fan base, so I have to imagine most of its sales came on day one. Yeah, like I said, I really hope to see a future where we do have those games on the Switch, and then everyone can just start from one and work. Hell, give us a, give us a collection for the Switch. That would be amazing. Okay, Nadia. This is a several headlines combined into one. All of the RPGs are becoming TV shows now. And they sure are, and I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. Well, let's start with the biggest one. Fallout is going to be a TV show. It's coming from the Westworld folks. It's going to be on Amazon Prime Video, it looks like. And as I tweeted, I just don't see how this show is good, Nadia. I'm not sure how it would work. I could see a kind of an interesting thing going on with all the vault experiments, I guess it's a matter of, are they basing it on, like, the earliest Fallout games, which actually had some really interesting moral questions and and uh, locations and quests and all of that? Or are they basing it on the more sanitized, quest-driven later Fallout games, which, you know, have don't really want to preach the evils of nuclear war to you so much as they want to give you a bomb and say, hey, explode it because this is fun, this is a fun thing to do. So a few things. The world of Fallout is actually pretty interesting. There are a lot of cool factions and everything. A, a lot of space for good writers to actually work within it. But on the other hand, it really is Mad Max with a 1950s kind of sheen over it. And uh, I don't know. Like, will that, that, that works fine for a video game? Will that translate to TV? Probably, maybe. I don't know. People will watch it. A lot of Fallout is also its atmosphere. I'll never forget playing Fallout 4 for the first time, and for some reason I, I got a, a radiation storm very early in the game. And just the atmosphere that came with that and the kind of freakiness of it like really stuck with me. But it's not the kind of thing that's easy to emulate in a game, and I feel like it's the strongest element of the newer Fallout games. Also, I think that... So much of Fallout's strength is in the choices that you get to make and how you deal with things, the character that you play, the sense of freedom in exploring this world. Storytelling is not a strong suit of the Fallout series. It never hasn't been for quite a while now. So it's difficult to imagine being able to tell a really strong story on a TV setting, not the least because it's being made by the people who did Westworld, a show that's terrible. <laughs> I never watched it. I didn't know it was terrible. My brother is a fan, or he used to be. He doesn't talk about it anymore. 
I watched the original, the first season, and it had all of the trappings of a prestige TV show, the way that it was shot, uh, the, the buzz that was around it, uh, and everything. And yet it was so dumb. <laughs> I, I don't want to sound like a, a snob, but I find a lot of TV is dumb. And that's part of the reason I don't really watch it. I just feel like I'm being having like dumb things stuffed into my ears and my eyes every time I watch television. But there is really good TV out there. I know there is. And I just don't have patience unless it's a a cartoon. Give me like a a cartoon of like Tom chasing Jerry around with an axe and I'll think it's the most brilliant thing on planet Earth. But make me sit still and listen to adults talking. I'll be like, I can't have time for this. I have no excuse because I'm watching uh, True Blood, a show that is freaking wretched. So (laughs) Isn't that like about vampires or some crap? Yeah, it's about vampires coming out of the coffin and living in the real world. Oh, well, as someone who writes stuff like that, that's an original concept. And get this, uh, vampire rights are compared to gay rights, which is a wonderfully troubling. It's a a wonderfully troubling comparison, given that vampires are A, predators, and B, turning people into them forcefully against their will. What year was this? Oh, it came out in 2008. Sounds like it. But really, it's just an excuse for very handsome white vampires to make uh, goo eyes at the uh, the very beautiful Southern Belle, Sookie. Definitely a product of its time. Anyway, so that show's very bad. Um, <laughs> Fallout might... Well, it, I imagine it'll have really good production values and it'll make a gigantic splash. And it may even be good because they're not trying to cram in reveal after reveal after reveal after dumb reveal like they do in Westworld, so... See, I haven't watched The Witcher, but I understand that, number one, of course, it's hugely popular. Number two, that's more based on the books than the game, so that might be one of the reasons it's very successful. I wonder, like, you can't do something like that with Fallout. Was, but so. even, even The Witcher TV show isn't that good. Like, people like Henry Cavill and everything, but it, it got better as the show went on. But initially, especially in the first couple episodes, it looked really cheap. It looked like freaking Hercules. Ah, good old Hercules and Xena and all that crap. Yeah, bring it all back. Stuff it in my eyes. The 90s swords and sorcery TV shows. The centaurs with no legs ever. We'll watch it, obviously. We'll talk about it on this podcast, but meh. (laughs) Meh, exactly. Fallout meh. A, A Disco Elysium TV show is in production. That's more interesting. Because, uh, obviously, Disco Elysium's way more story-driven in a lot of ways. It's also very choice-driven, which, again, is hard to convey. But I think the Disco Elysium universe is more interesting than the Fallout universe, just as a concept for a TV show. Yeah, is the original creator on the show, or is it being handled by someone else entirely? The studio is working with a television development company called DJ2. It's not clear whether the director, the designer, lead writer, that kind of thing, are actually working closely with the show, but they're at least having meetings with them. DJ2 apparently is working on live action shows for Life is Strange, vampire film versions of Sleeping Dogs, and We Happy Few. Mm, (sighs) Settle down there, guys. Sounds like UA Bulls, like Return. Let's make a movie yeah, a of, of everything. I mean, it could end up being good. Yeah. I mean, you, who knows? I, I certainly don't. And finally, The World Ends With You is going to be an anime, Nadia. See, that's a little bit more to my speed, and that makes a little more sense, because I know it's going to be nonsense, but that's fine, because it's anime based on a video game. I'm cool. I'm just glad they're not making a sequel. I'm just glad they're not making a live action. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Can you imagine that with his backwards hoodie? I might actually watch The World Ends With You anime just because I really enjoyed the original story. It was nice. Yeah, I will definitely see something like that. I'm a little more receptive to it. might be terrible, but, you know, I'm prepared for that. The problem, once again, is that so many of these games are based on interesting interactions. And the thing that I really liked about The World Ends With You is the way that it kind of really subtly layered in the gameplay with the story and making you feel the the jarring nature of playing with different partners every time you change and how you would get used to them and build up kind of a rapport and how that was reflected in the gameplay. I, I think the DS version is still the best for that reason and do you is that possible to easily convey in an anime i don't know and not only that but like the ds game was a very tight and well-paced affair will an anime start being bloated and layering in tons of storylines so we don't necessarily need eh. i think that if they just kind of give us an anime that's very very stylish and has incredible music and you know some even if it has like some usual jrpg story about your friends and all that and, and love is important i think it'll be like not exactly an a plus anime but like a romp i think a lot of anime like rpgs that become anime don't have a hugely successful track record like the persona anime have not been very good or in the past i have seen screenshots of the persona 4 anime where chie was like in like in two in the same frame twice for some reason because it was so bad in care <laughs> So yeah, I guess we'll see. The Fallout, uh, I just, I hope the Fallout TV show is a lot better than I'm expecting. It's certainly the biggest out of all of these. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it's the biggest news anyway. Like, uh, I don't think the average gamer knows a lot about Disco Elysium uh, or The World Ends With You. So Fallout is the one that we'll be keeping our eye on most, I suppose. But Nadia, was US Gamers Game of the Year for 2019. How could the average gamer not know about it? <laughs> that's true because everybody reads us everybody a little bit of self-deprecating humor and on that note let's continue on to the xbox rpg console quest don't go away Hey everybody, this is Cap Bailey, Editor-in-Chief of US Gamer, here to tell you about Branching Narratives, US Gamer's brand new podcast hosted by Jeff Green. This week, we had a discussion with Pete Hines. Let's listen in to some of his earliest memories from his time working on Morrowind. I visited Bethesda like around 98, so maybe about a year before you started. And at that time, there is no way in hell I would have ever been able to predict of all the game companies all and the pc game companies at that point uh mm-hmm. i think xbox i think marlin was the first game on xbox yeah um, that was our first that console. bethesda yeah. would be the company that rose <laughs> to the place it's at I now i don't know why you would <laughs> i mean, I mean I it was, was just like a <laughs> we, dorky we you know yeah little we took we took up like like one hallway in one part of an uh, of that building like there was there's a hand when i started in 99 i was the department it was me and a marketing artist that was it i was the director of pr and marketing but i had no i had nobody else to do anything you know other than like having an assistant 
somebody who actually came in and and took took workload off of me. That was that was Aaron Losey. Uh probably in 2005 was the first time I ever got like actual help in my department to to manage stuff and to work on stuff. Oh my god. So yeah. all of Morrowind was basically just you. <laughs> I did that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, just me and and my marketing artist, that was it. I did, and, well, and I mean, you know, Todd and, and, and folks on the team would pitch in and help out on, on stuff. But yeah, I mean, I did everything on Morrowind, Jeff. I wrote the manual. Uh, I was the editor in chief for the strategy guide that we published ourselves. I, I, you know, I was in charge of the box and all of the ads and all of the community and PR and everything. Wow. And somehow, and somehow we pulled it off. Branching Narratives is released every single Wednesday. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Nadia, it's time to add the Xbox to our console RPG quest, our ongoing series in which we explore the RPG legacies of every single console that has come out to date. Well, most of them. I don't think we're, I don't think we're doing the Ouya. No, we're going to skip the Ouya. Can we skip the Ouya? I think we can skip Is that the okay? Yeah, yeah. We did the Jaguar, I mean. <laughs> we did do the Jaguar. You know what? We, we gave it a try. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the Xbox, Nadia. Let's, to begin with, what is your earliest memory of the Xbox? I think when the Xbox was out uh, or coming out, um, that was when I was working kind of a night shift at a custodial job at a mall overnight. We'd like wax oh, the floors. Oh, your famous janitor job. My janitor job, indeed. And there was a midnight launch for Xbox at the uh, EB Games there, and I don't think anybody showed up. <laughs> Really? I'm serious. It was, uh, I just remember the security guard complaining about how he had to be there. And there was like no line to really shepherd or anything. It was just like nobody was there. So I always, I thought back then, oh, well, I guess that's a failure from Microsoft. Of course, that wasn't the case in the end. The thing that I remember is that the Xbox was kind of everywhere. I don't remember it being quite like that for some reason. It was certainly there, but it was definitely overshadowed by PlayStation 2 by loads and loads and loads. Uh, I had a, the first time I saw the Xbox in action, I had a friend who showed us like Halo and was just kind of showing us what the hard drive could do. And that impressed me because uh, she would shoot like a Marine or whatever the hell the enemies are in that game. And they'd stay on the floor and just not disappear because the hard drive allowed that kind of thing. So at first I was like, well, who the hell needs a console with a hard drive? But of course, now it is obviously like one of the biggest innovations in consoles. Like, since God, since controllers, practically. My earliest memory of the original Xbox is, well, I remember the run-up to it, but also, apparently my friend was the first person in Minnesota to buy an Xbox. Oh, cool. Did did they get, like, a cool prize? They got a picture in Game Informer. Oh, sure, why not? It's <laughs> something. I don't know why he bought an Xbox. It wasn't like he was really excited about it, but... I guess he just kind of decided that he wanted one. So he got it and he got Halo and we we're like, cool. <laughs> well, this is certainly a console. I remember the memes. There were lots and lots of memes. LOL, Xbox is huge and whatnot. Yeah, it didn't have a lot of games at launch. Uh, Halo was 
kind of the game that ended up carrying it for quite a while, while but you know what? Sometimes that's all you need. That is really true. It's kind of like how the N64 in many ways was carried by a very few games and GoldenEye was one of them because that was another console shooter. Honest question. If Microsoft hadn't shelled out and bought Bungie right out of the gate, would the Xbox have failed? Um, I think it could have. Uh, I mean, it did not have any kind of presence in Japan. And over here, as you said, it was all about well, Halo. Well, let's not overstate the importance of Japan here. Um, I Japan's don't know. Japan's a small market at the end of the day. I, I guess that is true. Without Either way, without Bungie slash Halo, I think uh, there was probably not going to be any sort... It wouldn't have thrived, I don't think. Like, it, it, it took a while for it to get that, that hold. And then it, it really kind of took off with the Xbox uh, One. Sorry, not the One. The um, 360. I don't know. It's hard to say. What do you think? I think that it would have had a lot of more trouble getting traction because for all of the marketing that Microsoft threw at this thing, huge marketing events everywhere, it was all over the place, it needed that killer app. It needed the game that would truly establish it as a must-own console. And even with all of that, even with Halo, the Xbox did not... Well, it was neck and neck with the GameCube for most of the generation. And people act like the GameCube was an abject failure. Well, <laughs> it's not like the Xbox did much better. No, it really didn't. And it's funny. I was thinking about the the literature they published at the time. People saying, can the Xbox succeed? And someone, I can't remember who, said, well, Microsoft has all the money in the world to throw at it and make it work. And yet we know in this day and age, that doesn't really work, because look at Amazon, and of course Google Stadia is tanking real fast, and God, who has more money than Google or Amazon? So Microsoft didn't just throw money at it, though. It, it really did kind of try to, to nurture the, I was going to say nurture the little thing, but God, that thing was huge. <laughs> just want to point out, total sales for the Xbox, 20, 24 million. Hmm, that's uh... Total sales for the GameCube, 21 million. Owie. Total sales for the PS2, 155 million. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a clear winner there. This is keeping in mind that Microsoft pulled the plug on the Xbox really early. They did. They absolutely did. Because yeah, they pulled the plug. Like, the GameCube kind of faded out of existence by 2006. Microsoft just yanked the plug as soon as the 360 came out. And they're like, okay, Xbox was our kind of almost beta console. This is how we got our foothold. The Xbox 360 is the main event, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. The actual Xbox, do you know how the Xbox got its name, Nadia? Oh, I've heard this story, but I can't, re I can't remember exactly all the details. Uh, it was originally pitched as the Direct Xbox. Get it? Right. It was pitched by the Direct X team, and it later was shortened to Xbox, a name that the marketing team apparently hated, <laughs> and was used as an example of what console, what name that they weren't going to use for this console. And all of the all of the focus groups said we we like that Xbox name. Yeah, it's like burn marketing team. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at focus groups, they're the same people who always who are responsible for every single icon on every mobile game being exactly the same. That's true, and I mean they were parodied perfectly on The Simpsons with the Gene Scratchy. So you want a down to earth show about Magic's robots, like. Yeah, also you should win stuff by watching. The Xbox infamously had a gigantic controller 
I I remember holding that thing for the first time and having no idea what the heck was going on with it because it had so many buttons, Nadia. It had so many buttons. It was so huge and just so uncomfortable. It is my least favorite controller in the history of everything, and I have played ColecoVision. It just playing it just holding that made me think wow this is not a console for me microsoft wants me to jump in a lake i i don't particularly like penny arcade anymore but the at the time they had some pretty good parodies they had some great parodies i have to admit we've replaced gabe's xbox controller with a bear can gabe tell the difference oh they really slimmed this thing down (laughs) (laughs) that's extremely accurate I remember playing Halo for the first time and having no idea what the heck to do with twin stick controls. There was just, I felt like I was in outer space with those things. Yeah, that was a, that was a very novel for the time. I, there you go, just playing Xbox in general, I had no idea what to do. Quote, back of the box quote by Cat Bailey. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, patting your head and rubbing your tummy while trying to play a video game. It's just... I felt like I was rewiring my brain, learning yeah. how to play Halo for the first time. And holy, I, I played plenty of Halo with my friends who all had Xboxes. Xbox was really dominant on co- on college campuses it at was. the time. I was in college at the time, so uh, Halo was rampant. And I had I was wretched. I was I was just freaking terrible because I, I did not own an Xbox. I had no intention of buying an Xbox. I was actively hostile to the Xbox. <laughs> I was just very, very apathetic. I looked at that, like, horrible design on the cover, and I said, wow, this is a choice you guys made. All right, cool. I I was still very much in my Nintendo GameCube. It's still good. It's still good, face. So it, it, it was good, and, and it had a few good games that was worth it. Like, I really liked um, another Smash, uh, another campus uh, hit was Smash Brothers, of course. We always like to say that the Xbox didn't really make it with Japan, which is true, and that it didn't really have a lot of Japanese games, also true, but that's more of a Japanese legacy than a lot of people remember, mostly because of all the holdovers from the Dreamcast, which R.I.P. Right, yeah, it did have, um, it had like Jet Set Radio, for example, didn't it? It did, and it also had Shenmue 2. Skies and... of Arcadia, I think. Uh, no, it did not have Skies of Arcadia. That okay. never came over. It was on the GameCube. Right. Uh, I remember that a lot of people said, I am buying an Xbox the second that they confirmed Panzer Dragoon Orta was coming out for it. That actually, I did play that, and that is probably my favorite Xbox game. It was hard, as I recall, but I, I really enjoyed it. I love what they did with the universe, because the Panzer Dragoon universe is really interesting, and they, they did right by it. The one game that might have gotten me to buy an Xbox was Ninja Gaiden. Oh, I've heard so many swear words about that game. I mean, like, mostly in the in the positive, like, how hard it is and how punishing it is, but how satisfying it is. Uh, I think I know someone who, like, broke their door, like, kicking or punching it because they were so mad at that game. It looked absolutely incredible for it the did. time. Like, it, it was mind-blowing. And the, the, the Xbox had an advantage from a horsepower perspective over both the GameCube and... And the PlayStation 2, so. It did. And when you think back to it, how many innovations it brought to the uh, to the console market, even though it took a long time for everyone to kind of finally get on board and say, okay, fine, we'll do online, we'll do multiplayer, we'll do uh, hard drives. Everyone got there eventually, and it was Microsoft that started. 
I said that the Xbox was really the beginning of the modern era as we know it. And not just because Sega went away and we got the quote-unquote big three consoles, but also the Xbox was the beginning of online play. Microsoft and Sony were pushing their online offerings and Nintendo was like, GameCube connectivity to GBA, yay! Yay, everyone wants that. Nobody wants that. Pac-Man, <laughs> hello. I remember my brother, um, I can't remember if he was playing the original Halo or uh, I think it was actually Halo 3 on the 360. I'm just kind of sitting with him and he says, hey, watch this. And he unmutes the lobby and it's just a torrent of children yelling swear words and slurs. <laughs> and then he mutes it again. Yes, that was quite infamous, wasn't it? The incredibly toxic communities that were endemic to uh, the Xbox. Unfortunately, yes. And that's that's kind of where a lot of that started. That's really a shame. Another way that the Xbox was a big shift, I think a really important shift, was that it began opening the floodgates for PC developers to come over to console big for the time. first time. Yeah. It was almost conceived for that reason, wasn't it? Just the idea of, hey, bring your computer games over to console. And, and many, many people did. I often think of PC games coming in several kind of distinct eras. Like the 80s might be considered the golden age of PC gaming. And then the 90s would be the silver age. And then after the silver age, traditional PC-centric genres started to fall off. Like flight simulators, in particular, turn-based yeah. strategy. Uh, some stuck around, but there was a huge shakeout, I want to say. Isometric RPGs started to fade away. And you started to see consoles, which had previously been a very distinct kind of thing from PCs. PC and console started to merge together. And maybe one of the key inflection points was when Halo came over to Xbox and made first-person shooters viable on console for the first time. It was no longer a console kind of uh, it was no longer a pc only proposition and that that was a big moment and then meanwhile over here you have bioware developer that had really risen to prominence in the 90s thanks to baldur's gate and things like that and they were going to make knights of the old republic they announced this in i believe 2001 it was initially going to be for pc and next-gen consoles but they ultimately settled on the xbox not because microsoft threw a lot of money at them Nadia, mm-hmm. but because they looked at the Xbox and its similarities to your typical desktop computer, which was another reason that the Xbox was really kind of important. It was no longer like this custom created thing with all of these custom chipsets. It was just off the shelf parts put yes. in a box that you could attach to your TV. And they said, well, that's pretty similar to what we do with PC. So let's put Knights of the Old Republic on that. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, it was uh, probably a simple transition, as simple as that kind of thing can get, and it was a it was a good decision. It really helped kind of start the wave of Western RPGs on uh, the Xbox and Xbox 360 in particular. I think I, I already said that if any game could have gotten me to buy an Xbox original OG fat, uh, <laughs> it probably would have been Ninja Gaiden, maybe Panzer Dragoon Orta, but I think Kotor was another one like KOTOR all of my friends were playing it they were completely nuts for it it was a huge deal Uh, it was an incredible get for the Xbox and I think a lot in a lot of ways the game that defined that console alongside Halo yeah most likely I remember a lot of buzz around KOTOR and I'm sad I didn't pick it up at the time I didn't actually have an Xbox but my husband was working at Blockbuster at the time RIP and he like just kind of rented it over and over again so we owned it in a way and 
yes, I did play a lot of Panzer Dragoon, but I kind of missed out on KOTOR, and I'm, I'm sad I did. We won't spend a lot of time talking about KOTOR, uh, mostly because we talked about it for our Top 25 RPG Countdown. I go, so just go listen to that episode. It's, it's a good one. But suffice it to say, uh, it really changed the way that people thought of what consoles, what RPGs could do. And it started, it kind of opened up a new world that in a lot of ways would culminate in games like Witcher 3 and Assassin's Creed Valhalla, these huge open world kind of experiences, these very open-ended prestige experiences that were so different from your traditional JRPG, one that you had a lot of choices in. Yeah, it was a little bit alien for the time. Um, not quite as, I mean, they were still story-driven, of course, but definitely a lot more choice-driven than your average JRPG. It also started BioWare's Ascent, that, which I would say was closely linked to Microsoft because, of course, ma- and it would culminate in Mass Effect in 2007. But I think that for console owners in particular, KOTOR really put BioWare on the map, and that was in large part thanks to the original Xbox. Yeah, so, I mean, when we talk about... I, I have to say, I don't exactly sit here and think about the Xbox as an RPG machine, but it very much is, in its own, just in its own way. It was extremely important to the development of Western RPGs, which I admit is still a big blind spot that I'm working on. There was also Morrowind, which yes, was, was kind of keyed... Another game that was on our top 25 RPGs of all time list and was definitely a step down from the PC version. It was really held back by extremely long load times. But again, mm-hmm. having this massive PC-like experience on console where you could explore this whole world and have all of these really interesting choices to make and everything. Really, I think, again, just like KOTOR, really changed the mindset of what console RPGs uh, could do. And I suggest that you go listen to that episode. And there are a couple other RPGs that I want to highlight. And this is a big one. In around 2001 or thereabouts, uh, Peter Molyneux, who is very well known for games like Populous, comes out. And he's he's going to make the ultimate RPG, Nadia. Of course he is, because he's Peter Molyneux. And Peter Molyneux was maybe known for hyperbole. He, he wanted to make... <laughs> The the everything games. Um, he made a game for the PC where you had this godlike pet yeah, that monster. Was, that was black and white, and it was ambitious, but God, it was a mess. Like it just made my computer say, "What the hell am I running right now?" <laughs> I played black and white too, and I was just like, "What? Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's exactly it. What? Okay. <laughs> I had a cool pet that could rampage. Yeah, I had like a lion or something. I don't remember. <laughs> But yeah, so he's making Fable, and he he says it's going to be the greatest RPG ever, which in in so many words, like he says this. So of course, he immediately sets expectations. I remember going into a software, etc. and being like, so uh, what are the games everybody's looking forward to? And the person behind the desk going, Fable, it's going to be the best RPG ever made. And I was just like, what what is this Fable? (laughs) (laughs) Did he mean it when he said that? Or was he just being sarcastic? Well, then back then, people actually believed it. No, no, I think that he genuinely believed it. And a lot of people did. People a lot of very people, excited about this game. Yeah, it was it was before the Age of Cube, I suppose, or whatever that thing that Molyneux released that you tapped it and got to the center of it. God, that was weird. He's a weird guy. I mean, he had big ideas. He and really I think does. That everybody was hooked on this notion, especially in the early two thousands, of the everything game. Right. Where it was almost like going into a holodeck, right? Where exactly. you could exist in this world and your choices had meaning and you could do whatever you want. And people really 
became obsessed with sandbox games. I mean, this was right around the time that GTA became really big. Yes, and that changed a lot of things. Uh, MMORPGs were on the rise at this time. And there was, a, I think, a real sense that you could... We finally had the technology to create a truly incredible interactive experience. And Fable was going to be the game. The game where your choices mattered and you were going to be, you could be good or evil depending on what you did. You could do whatever you want. You could plant a freaking acorn and it could grow to a mighty oak. <laughs> of course. And it was going to have branching story paths and children would change their hairstyles to look like you because you're a hero and there'd be competition in the, in the world with all of these other heroes and so many big promises. Wow. He had big ideas. You got to give him that. And. Most of those ideas never came to pass because you have all of these ideas and it turns out it takes a lot of time and effort and, uh, to actually implement all of these systems. And um, Fable is mostly known for quote-unquote broken promises, I want to say. <laughs> I think Molyneux in general is known for broken promises. But yes, Fable was, um, I mean, I never play it, but I, I hear it's like a great game. It's a great RPG by itself. Yeah, that's the thing is that everybody tends to focus on what Fable didn't do, but what it did do was pretty cool. It, it was a action RPG with an interesting open world to explore. For the time, very good graphics. Uh, it was a journey that began with you as a mop-topped little boy. Mm -hmm, girl. Which I always like. And you would grow up to be a warrior, and you could get scarred in combat. That was really cool. Chicks and scars. based on how you interacted with NPCs in the environment and animals and everything, you would either become good or evil, and you would get a halo, or you would sprout evil wings, because, you know, that's exactly what happens. That's what happens, you... I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to recycle <gasps> devil wings. I'm just going to show up for work one day with devil wings and on fire, and people are like, Kat, you've been making bad decisions, haven't you? <laughs> Maybe. It's all over your face and your body. Uh, there was a ton to do in this game, and it was pretty well realized. It's just that maybe when you overpromise, that maybe people are just going to always focus on that. Yeah, that's really a shame because it's not like Molyneux is incapable of making good games. He clearly is. He just sits there and hypes them up and says impossible things and puts his developers through incredible stress. And at the end of the day, his games are solid and fun if he just like wouldn't talk. He'd be a perfectly competent and respected game developer today instead of whatever the hell he is now. I mean, you could do a lot of cool things. You could get married and have a wife and go have sex with your wife with years before Mass Effect. I mean, it must think about the fact that this was happening on a console in 2001. We were just a few years removed from basically a market dominated by mascot platformers for kids. And now we had games that were made for teenagers instead, but whatever. Games where you could have sex with your wife, I guess. It, probably, it must have been really awkward looking, like that mass, the Mass Effect thing. <laughs> so, I mean, Fable was a good game. It captured a legion of fans. It made Lionhead an important pillar of Xbox's kind of early exclusives strategy. Uh, at the time, Microsoft did not own Lionhead. Lionhead was an independent studio. It was just developing exclusively for Microsoft. But eventually, Microsoft would go and actually buy them. Lionhead would go on to make Fable 2 and Fable 3. Fable 2, I think, is the best in the series uh, by a long shot. And now there's a very good chance that Fable will return courtesy of Playground Games. We're just waiting for the official announcement on that front. And, I mean... For better or worse, it's been established as a major RPG franchise in RPG history. 
Yeah, I have to say, that's another thing. I don't know what it was with me in the Xbox, where I had the Xbox, but I did not play any of the RPGs on it, which is... Okay, fine, I can see why maybe I gave KOTOR a pass, because I, I like Star Wars, I'm not a huge, huge fan. But a game like Fable, like, it looks exactly like something I would love, promises or not. So I am looking forward to the inevitable 4 or reboot or whatever is coming, because, let's face it, it's coming just a matter of when. Uh, yeah, it is... I think it is a franchise that, despite everything, people really want to see come back. And when that announcement finally comes, I think it'll generate a lot of goodwill. It's very British. They they call the world Albion. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's a bit British. The thing that really helped Fable was that there was actually an expansion pack that came out called The Lost Chapters, which added a whole bunch of different areas. It, it would have been a big old DLC thing mm-hmm. if it had been released, but instead it was released kind of as a almost game of the year edition with the original game but then they also called it the lost chapters at least that was the impression that i got from what i've been able to see of it yeah i guess back then it wasn't a matter of oh hey here's this dlc go ahead and download it even though we were connected to the internet at the time i don't think the interface was there for like those kinds of purchases i could be wrong oh definitely not dlc was not a thing right in 2005 <laughs> yeah buy the game again suckers So we already mentioned how the Xbox was a bit of a non-starter in Japan, and there are a lot of reasons for that. It's kind of infamous in that regard, for one thing. Um, Maybe the reticence by the Japanese market to accept an American console is a desire to kind of buy local, support local creators, I think. Um, Also, the thing was gigantic, so it didn't really... Get into the average Japanese entertainment center. Yeah, it would have taken up like a quarter of the average Japanese apartment. As I'm, as I'm told. <laughs> it's like you couldn't even get in the door. Well, I don't need my bathroom anyway. <laughs> it's just like, what is that, your couch? No, it's actually the Xbox controller. Just have a seat on it. <laughs> Sit on the controller and you can eat dinner on the on the Xbox <laughs> itself when it's time. But there was a JRPG that did come out for it, and that was Shimigami Tensei 9, a game that is not good. <laughs> That's another classic back-of-the-box quote from Cat. A game that is not good. Well, SMT9, it was fairly heavily promoted over in Japan by Atlas, and it did not succeed. It sold like 14,000 units, and it never came out in North America. If you actually play it, it's kind of ugly. It has a little bit of a Final Fantasy XII vibe to it, but without any of the visual flair. Uh, There's a big hacking element to it. It's almost like you're in an MMORPG. Of course. Uh, it, it became SMT Imagine or something similar to that um, I, on PC. I don't understand the numbering of SMT because aren't we waiting for SMT, what is it, 5 on the Switch? And what is... We are, yes. And this is 9. Okay, that okay, that, that clears it up. <laughs> this would give the count from Sesame Street a stroke. I don't know what's going on. But it takes place between the original SMT and SMT 2. Okay, so nine. Okay, good. <laughs> there we are. It fits in snugly, like a, like a, like a rug. Well, let's just call. Well, that's just like EA calling Madden, uh, having a Madden twenty five just randomly come out. Why? What the hell's a twenty five for? Because it was the twenty fifth anniversary. Oh, sure. Why not? So they had Madden twenty five, and people were like, "Well, that's that won't be confusing at all when it comes time for you know twenty twenty five, and now." <laughs> We're actually not that far away from 2025, and EA is probably like, God damn it. <laughs> it's like the Y2K of, of video games. People do these things without thinking about the future, or think the f- future is never going to come. 
And I bet they'll actually just call it Madden 25 because they're like, eh, screw it. Who cares? <laughs> Go buy the old. Oops, you bought the old one. Not our problem. You can make fun of a game that came out 10 years ago. We don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, uh, SMT9 did not do very well. Microsoft would uh, subsequently make a much bigger push for JRPGs, which we've discussed on this podcast before, and we'll discuss again when it comes time to talking about the Xbox 360. But on the Xbox, they were kind of a non-starter, not the least because the PS2 was way the heck more successful and way the heck more established, and why would anybody ever develop for anything else? Even Mm -hmm. GameCube didn't really have that many uh, Japanese developers. Sony kind of had them on lock. They certainly did, and yeah, most of Nintendo stuff, as usual, Nintendo was carried by his first parties. Um, Third parties just did not have much of a show there. Okay, last RPG that I want to highlight is Deus Ex Invisible War, which, unlike Morrowind and Knights of the Old Republic, which were kind of directly coming over from the PC in some ways, I mean, KOTOR would go to PC after Xbox, but Morrowind came out whenever. Um, Deus Ex Invisible War was a very slimmed down version of Deus Ex, a game that was also on our top 25 RPGs of all time. Most people think Invisible War is the weakest game in the series because they tried to consolify it, mm-hmm. which was a problem. And that's what happens when you think, uh, console gamers, they want simple, more accessible experiences. And in the end, Knights of the Old Republic and Morrowind, two games that didn't dumb it all down, uh, kind of won out. And so subsequently... We would be moving forward from this idea of like, well, we gotta have the console version. Wow, it only kinda... has five bio slots, you know, no That's... customization because console gamers are stupid. <laughs> it's like the uh, the Western version of Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. Westerners are too Westerners are too stupid to, for RPGs. Let's let's make it for babies with a great soundtrack. The Xbox would be largely killed in 2005 when the Xbox 360 came out, as we already mentioned. That was the main event. So the Xbox original had a very short lifespan, but because Microsoft poured a huge amount of marketing dollars in it, and because the games press were like, we want to play mature games, we're going to take it seriously, uh, they really put a lot of effort into pushing the Xbox and making it honestly seem a lot bigger than it actually was. And of course, it had Halo. Uh, yeah. The Xbox ultimately was a success, despite not selling uh that many units or at the very least it accomplished microsoft's objective of breaking into the games uh the video game space and not being an abject joke exactly good for them yeah Uh, from an rpg standpoint hardly any rpgs but the ones that it did have were really big nadia yeah um i think you nailed it on the head there when you said okay fine it was the it was nothing compared to the ps2 but it didn't exit as a joke because there's, we brought up Ouya. There, there's the biggest, one of the biggest jokes in in the gaming industry. Uh, Google is, is on track to become another one with Stadia, but no Xbox. It, uh, despite its silly name and silly design, it held its own. And one of the reasons why was because yes, it had what it had for RPGs was quite revolutionary. Yeah, it changed consoles. It did. It definitely, definitely did. I mean, consoles are partly the way they are because of the Xbox with the off-shelf, off-the-shelf parts and the hard drives and everything. Microsoft was really forward-thinking. I think a lot of Xbox's legacy was how easy the thing was to mod and how many people would mod it. Uh, the fact that it was a moddable <laughs> console and you could soft-mod it, that was pretty cool, honestly. That was a very new thing, yes. Uh, people, they, they sure did mod their Xboxes. And, of course, as I already mentioned... 
It brought PC and console games together. It revolutionized first-person shooters with the help of Halo. It's interesting. I don't perceive a huge amount of Xbox uh, nostalgia, but that's also because I don't have a lot of Xbox nostalgia, so I don't really care. The most nostalgia that I see for it is the Duke. People seem to love that thing. People love that damn controller. Probably because it's kitsch, right? It's just people are like... It's just this kitschy, cheesy, tacky controller that people nevertheless have a warm spot in their heart for. (laughs) Sometimes people like awful things, and that's all right as long as they're harmless. Uh, The bear controller. The bear controller. It'll hug you while you play. But uh, as for the Xbox itself, I I know that uh, sometimes contributor to US Gamer Doc Burford has a huge amount of nostalgia for the original Xbox. And I know that there are other people, but most of the time when I see people talk in glowing terms about the Xbox, they're not actually talking about how much they love the Xbox. They're talking about how much they loved Halo. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people, myself included, regard the Xbox as more of a first step where the Xbox 360 was the console that people actually do have a lot of nostalgia for and a lot of love for. And they remember the console itself more than just like, oh, hey, it had Halo. That was great. Like I see people go... Man, I love the GameCube. What an incredible system. It was so underrated. Uh, but when I see people talk about the Xbox, they're like, man, I had so many hours playing Halo 2. And hey, I met up with somebody who I used to play with for years and years on Xbox Live Arcade. And wow, it was such a big moment for me. Like people are more fixated on KOTOR or, uh, or on Halo than the actual Xbox, which at the end was kind of a souped up desktop PC. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it was important for that reason. Sometimes I think about when I was in school and I was like really big into console games, there was some kid who was always telling me, oh, PC's so much better. Look at this PC game and your baby console games can't manage this. I wonder what he thought once things started to merge together. And so that's the history of the Xbox and the console RPG legacy. If I were to pick one RPG that really defined the original Xbox, it's got to be KOTOR, right? Yeah, definitely KOTOR. And its sequel came out, but in some ways the sequel was better, but also worse. (laughs) (laughs) That's just the nature of sequels. I almost feel like that's an entirely different episode talking about all of that going on because that was one of Obsidian's earliest games and it was crazy buggy and it was missing all kinds of content, um, which made the ending like borderline nonsensical. (laughs) But it was a big deal when it came out. So what do you think of the original Xbox? Are you a big fan of it? Do you have a lot of fond memories of sitting around playing KOTOR or Fable or, heck, I don't know, Shin Megami Tensei, an imported version of (laughs) SMT9? Uh, Hell yeah. Let us know in the mailbag. Share your Xbox memories. We'll read them on the next episode. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, Nadia, every single week we do the track of the week, a segment in which we highlight an important piece of music from RPG history, because as we all know, RPGs are defined in large part by how good their soundtracks are, because soundtracks make really good soundtracks make for really good stories. Anyway, this week we were talking about the Xbox, so this one is going to be kind of theme appropriate. See if you can recognize this song.
Yes, this week's track of the week is the main theme from Fable, the song by Danny Elfman, Nadia. Yeah, that's uh, stuff like that was a huge deal in the day, like a huge world-famous composer like Danny Elfman doing a, a theme. Danny Elfman, of course, famous for his work alongside Tim Burton, where I think they really helped each other rise up. Maybe one of his most famous scorers, he helped score Batman when yes. Prince wasn't doing things. <laughs> oh man, what a, what a duo. What a great movie. Not a huge amount to say about this particular track. It just makes me think of 90s summer blockbusters. Very... Yes. Uh, how, how would you describe it, Nadia? You're absolutely right. Very pleasant because... Very digestible because Danny Elfman just writes that kind of music. Uh, you're right in that it does sound very movie blockbuster-y almost. It's, it's unique for its time. Or it is a product of its time, rather. So I don't know if my it was Microsoft's idea to go get Danny Elfman, but I do think it really speaks to the big push by a lot of game developers to make games feel more mature. Yes. Right? It's like, games have arrived. They're not for babies anymore. We're getting high-profile prestige people on here. Look, Danny Elfman. Yeah, it was definitely a time when developers wanted to be taken as seriously as movies. So having a, a composer like Danny Elfman, who's associated with many, many great movies... Uh, another score that we have to mention is uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. That's just brilliant. Uh, so, yeah, having that association there would have been a big push to kind of for that recognition. And it also speaks to Fable's desire to be seen as the biggest RPG. <laughs> I mean, the soundtrack <laughs> the was performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra and the Pinewood Singers. And it was composed in part by Russell Shaw, who did really good. And most of it is kind of ambient in nature and not all of that interesting but when you're actually playing the game it is quite pleasant and very beautiful in a lot of respects yeah i guess in in that tradition of western rpgs it's more it is more about the ambience than the actual compositions can i just say so we're wrapping up this era of games like we this is the last we're going to really say about this particular generation and then it's on to the xbox 360 i feel like this is one of the cringiest generations in console history <laughs> but this was the same generation as the ps2 and this is one of your favorite consoles isn't it i think the con the ps2 has a huge argument for being one of the absolute best rpg console one of the best most impactful best biggest library there's so much that was truly remarkable about it but games were so desiring to be taken seriously that there was just a lot of like really embarrassing crap out there like true crime <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. It really inaugurated the beginning of the, I want to say, the gray era. Like, mm. it would directly lead into that. Where it's like, everything is gray and brown, and because games are prestigious now, and so that's the only way that you can convey prestige is to drain all of the color out of them. No more sprites over here. Ignore all yeah. the sprites. Look at these uh, easily aging 3D graphics. Yeah, and um, I know that this was an era... If not now, then it came a little bit later, where Capcom in particular killed a lot of its really great franchises because it was trying to make them mature, like, God, poor Bionic Commando, poor Final Fight, just these real gray and brown messes that were full of swear words because you know, the kids like the swears, I guess. It was it was growing pains. People were like, games have arrived. It's like, oh, games have not arrived, but we're working on it. We're working on it. I think it's also important to just appreciate games for what they are. They are interactive media 
And it is just so much harder to kind of get your point across when you have to think about a, a game from so many angles versus so writing a paragraph, writing a string of music, f- filming a scene where you have one view and that's it, whereas you don't have to worry about bug checks in a, in a novel. Like, And for that reason, I just feel like it's okay to take video games for what they are on their own level. Some people won't like them. That's fine. We still take books and movies on, on different levels, don't we? Why can't we do the same for video games? It really was a seismic generation in Sony respects, though. And I think the Xbox really defined that aspect of it because, I mean, not only spearheading online play and changing the way that PC and consoles kind of interacted and people thought of it and having being home to the first... Um, major FPS that was truly successful on console, no offense to GoldenEye. Uh, <laughs> they freaking stole Rare from Nintendo. That was a big, big get, and that was a big surprise. I mean, by that point, Rare wasn't really putting out its best on the GameCube anyway, but it was still a, uh, what the hell, wow. That was a... And of course, then they squandered poor Rare. They're only just finally getting their feet back with uh, Sea of Thieves, which is actually quite popular. Uh, I thought for sure people kind of faded out on it and weren't playing it anymore, but no, it's got a good, solid fan base, uh, especially since it came to Steam. People really like the game. It's getting frequent updates, and Rare just seems to be having a really good time with it, so good for them for finally finding their feet. Their sea legs, if you will. And meanwhile, we started, we went from the really boisterous, exciting J-pop, J-rock soundtracks and you know, progressive music that came out of Chip's tunes uh, on the Super Nintendo to uh, this more ambient soundtrack that's like, it's like a 90s music blockbuster, mm-hmm. and you're, it's very prestigious, and it's uh, performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra. Please enjoy. By Danny well, Elfman. One thing from that era that I'm kind of glad that I don't see nearly as much anymore is getting celebrities to voice characters in games, because they never cared, and... Whereas, like, you know, voice actors who are actually dedicated to the games, they like their characters. They they love who they are, and they're not just kind of reading a, a script and saying, okay, well, uh, where's my 40 bucks or however much they get paid. I kind of dragged this generation. Do you, What do you think is a good thing that came out of this console generation? Uh, I think as we have gone over, it has, it really was just growing pains. And yeah, we are disparaging this console a lot and this console generation hitting it with sticks and laughing, but... If we didn't go through those kind of awful rough times to begin with, we wouldn't have what gaming is today, which is just like a, a cornucopia of selection. Like, uh, we are absolutely spoiled for what we have and how great games are these days. And if we didn't have, like, the Xbox's awkward transition giving us hard drives and, you know, the, the, that weird controller setup and, uh, you know, taking themselves so seriously for a while until they finally realize, okay, it's okay to, be, to have fun We're just making games here we wouldn't have what we have today. So it was it was a bridge, and I appreciate it for that. I think the thing that makes me sad about this generation is that so many of my favorite genres were very dead at this period yeah, of time. Yeah, definitely. It was like, all my friends are dead, so all my genres. Space combat shooters, dead. Uh, 2D sprite-based platformers, dead. Uh, isometric RPGs, dying. I mean, we had Baldur's Gate, Dark Alliance, a game that we didn't really talk about. But, I mean, it also kind of signified the direction that we were going. It's like, well, people don't have any patience for these cerebral games. They need to be <laughs> hardcore, full of action. They need to be Mountain shooting. Mountain Dew slamming on your forehead. Ah! Guns. 
Doritos, Doritos, Doritos. <laughs> Just, uh, what an embarrassing time for games. I'm sorry. It but, was their teenage years. Uh, I think the best thing that I can say for this generation is that a lot of these games do actually hold up really well in a way that certainly the N64 slash PlayStation right. era Definitely. does not. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a reason that so many of these games have been remastered. So many of these games are games that we're still playing. I mean, Halo got an absolutely brilliant remaster through the Halo Master Chief collection at this point. it Well, it took some years, but it's it's a good remaster now. And if you look at, I mean, Knights of the Old Republic has not been remastered, but it's still very playable. It's on like practically every console at this point. You can play it on everything. Uh, I mean, during this era, Persona 4 came out. Uh, Persona persona 3 came out i mean the ps2 of course has such a rich rpg legacy uh a lot of the gamecube games like wind waker still very playable today so it, this generation super holds up in so many respects it's just that we remember all of the best of it but the it was one of those high high low lows kind of situations where the lows really sucked yeah the lows went pretty deep let's continue on to letter time okay nadia last week um i had some opinions on the Sinnoh region and pokemon diamond and pearl yes and uh somebody wanted to i I also had opinions on pokemon let's go and some people wanted to defend pokemon let's go i noticed there were some pokemon let's go defenders and i salute you you are my children um ted said now to step on to some pokemon opinions i don't think of let's go as pokemon for babies because pokemon is pokemon for babies okay that's not true but (laughs) i I see your point it's very accessible but at the same time um i think that there has definitely been a split where pokemon has become progressively more complicated and they wanted to get back to its roots a little bit and have true true accessibility and that's what pokemon let's go is all about yes there's a very small simplification simplification on the actual battling end, and honestly, ca- the catching of regular Pokemon is not an exciting thing in the regular games. It's mostly just talking, tossing a quick ball at the start of the encounter. Let's Go gets rid of the fluff while adding Pokemon that not only follow you, but follow you with individual personality. Also, the partner Eevee and Pikachu have a real easy time pulling at my heartstrings. I love to reach out to High Five and outstretch Little Paw. Yes. Not I miss that so much. Those games are so freaking cute. My they God. were adorable. I love them. As for the idea of a Sinnoh remake, I am pretty firmly in your corner, Cat. I like a lot of the Pokemon in Sinnoh and note the generation's importance in gameplay mechanics, but as a region, it is boring. The villain team is plain, and most of the gym leaders forgettable. While I would like Dialga and Palkia to maybe get an update like Rudin and Kyogre did, there is, are even a bunch of legendary Pokemon I could skip, like those wandering psychics and Heatran. I wouldn't mind some new stuff with Darkrai or Shaman, though. Point is, without some drastic changes, I too fail to see the appeal of a Sinnoh remake. Yeah, I think that it was a real watershed generation in so many ways, and this physical special split was a big deal, going online was a big deal, but none of that translates to the modern era, and it's kind of a boring genera- uh, kind of a boring region, as much as I like snow, and yeah. feel warm feelings toward Hokkaido. Yeah, um, I do like Shaman though, one of my favorite legendaries, so cute. I like Darkrai a lot. It's great. Great design. Yeah, there were a couple of great designs in that game, but uh, Shaman, uh, just very simple, very cute. I, I like hedgehogs. Uh, plant hedgehog. Plant hedgehog. Like, there you go. There you go. It's a hedgehog with grass on its back. What more do you need? Come on. When I was living in Japan, I went and to the movie theater to see 
the Pokemon Diamond and Pearl movie because they were giving out Darkrai via Wi-Fi at the event. <laughs> I love it. And I've never been more embarrassed in my life than when I went up to the box office and asked for a ticket, and they're like, oh, do you, do you have any kids? And I was like, uh. nope, just me. <laughs> and they gave me, like, the whole package and everything. It was almost like buying a Happy Meal. I was like, thanks. <laughs> and then, like, you, you turn your back and hear the whispers. Yeah, and then I sat in the back of the movie theater feeling really dumb with my DS, but I got my dang Darkrai, and it's uh, one of my rarest Pokemon, so there you go. Was it a good movie, at least? I, I never saw that one. I mean, it was only in Japanese. I can understand about half of it. <laughs> I got the gist of it. It was an enjoyable film for the most part. I It made me very sleepy because um, <laughs> listening to a foreign language, well, trying to understand it at any, at any given time was actually kind of headache-inducing. It would be. Uh, it's funny. We don't think about how much energy our brains take up, but doing something like that would really tax it. In addition to talking about Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, Nadia, we also picked five Diablo-like games um, that you should be playing in honor of the Diablo 2 anniversary. It's Descendants, as it were. And Johnny Fitz says, my first exposure to Diablo wasn't actually Diablo at all, but instead a Diablo clone named Revenant. For years, I thought Revenant was this awesome hidden gem of a game with completely unique mechanics. And my first reaction upon actually playing Diablo two years later was, hey, this is just a ripoff of Revenant. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that with games. But it's, a little, it's a little embarrassing, but it's, it's common. Okay, that's the end of our mailbag. If you want to contribute, leave a note on our comments on the show notes or send an email, cat.bailey at usgamer.net or DM me on Twitter, the underscore catbot. Access of Bloodgod is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on social media. I'm at the underscore Catpot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And U.S. Gamer is at U.S. Gamernet. We stream every Friday. We have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. And you should check out our other podcast, Branching Narratives, which also comes out on Wednesday. We'll be back next week, as always, to talk about more RPGs. More RPGs forever. Thanks yes. for listening, and until next time, happy adventuring. <laughs>